And thank you so much for serving us by reading God's word before us. Well, good morning, everybody. This final Sunday of the year. I've been thankful for us to be able to worship together in this year, to be able to worship together as familia, and that we get to close this year together as familia. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve here as the, the preaching pastor uh, in our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia, but particularly here over this congregation at, at Tri-Village Church. Um, and, and like Sergio was saying, we're starting a new series, a very short series over the next three weeks, starting today and the next two weeks, um, that we've called Unplugged. You'll see the, the title up on the screen. Over these next three Sundays, as we end 2021 and begin 2022, we, we want to take some time together as a family to look at the rhythms that God invites his people into in order to reflect what we believe in what we do. For the next three weeks, we're going to be uh, uh, studying several rhythms that God gives, us, uh, gives to us, not just as creator but as Father, for our good and his glory, to, to grow us into who he made us to be, who he saved us to be. You see, in a world where we are so hyper-connected to everything around us through the uh, glowing rectangles that live in our pockets, for the next three weeks, we want to take some time to unplug together and talk about the rhythms that God has built into creation and even more specifically into the lives of his people, of his disciples. These rhythms that they, they, they go against the grain of society, but they go with the grain of how God has made the world and how he is shaping us as a people, as his countercultural, radical, alternative community, his, his city on a hill, his outpost of new creation life in these local bodies of believers. Now, as I say all that and set us all up, some of you might already have your pens, not just to take notes, but to get the, the to-do list ready of all the things that I'm about to tell you to do. Trust me, if I was sitting there, I'd be doing the same thing myself, because everybody who knows me knows that I like lists and tasks, to-dos that I can kind of cross off and feel like I'm uh, making the world a better place by being productive. But that's not what we're going to start this morning. This morning, I want us to start with a question. Why is it so hard to slow down? Why is it so hard to slow down? If you notice, if you look around in our culture today, it's really easy to speed up, right? To try to get more done, to, to try and fit more into the 24 hours that the Lord has given all of us from CEO to retail employee, from entrepreneur to iron worker to lawyer to graphic designer to stay-at-home mom to realtor to editor we drink coffee to speed our minds up sooner and play Tetris with our calendars to squeeze every last minute out of our weeks. Why is it so hard for us to slow down? Maybe a better question about, why, uh, about this uh, particular topic of rest is, why is slowing down less attractive to us than speeding up? Why do we want to speed up more than we want to slow down? Maybe even as I ask these questions, you're listening to this morning and say, Eric, listen, you don't, you don't know. I want nothing more than to slow down. It's not that I don't want to. It's that I feel like I can't. There's too much at stake. For some of us, these questions might condemn us rather than challenge us. It's not that we don't want to slow down. It's that the cost of slowing down feels like too high a price to pay. Right? Slowing down may mean that we don't have enough to pay our bills or that we're disappointing someone that we really care about or even worse, that we're being perceived as lazy and potentially maybe even losing our job. Whatever the reason we struggle with to slow down, 
No matter how we experience the speed of life, deep down all of us understand the need to rest. That, that somehow we were built to work and to rest. But even as I say that, even as that truth bubbles up to the surface in our lives, there's multiple voices that are battling in our heads and our hearts that try to redefine rest for us. In his book, The Rest of God, Pastor Mark Buchanan describes this battle when he writes this. He says, in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is sloth. But without rest, we miss the rest of God. The rest he invites us to enter more fully so that we might know him more deeply. Be still and know that I am God. Some knowing is never pursued, only received. And for that, you need to be still. The only way to hear the true definition of rest and and inhabit the kind of rest in our daily lives is not to do more or get better or speed up growth, but in God's economy to be still. To learn and practice the art of being still and knowing that he is God. To practice slowing down so that we might inhabit the rest of God. Because rest, if you haven't noticed already, doesn't really come naturally to us. Rest is actually a supernatural gift that God gives to his children. And so this morning, as we end this year, I want to invite us to do one thing through this particular sermon, to practice the art of receiving God's gift of rest. To practice the art of receiving God's gift of rest. Now, I wanted to be really careful how I phrase this particular sentence for you this morning because a conversation on rest can very quickly and very easily become a new to-do list for us. And that's not where God's definition of rest starts. This morning, the rhythm that I want us to meditate on is rest, but my plan is not to burden you or to condemn you. After all, who needs more things to weigh our hearts down at the end of the year? No, this morning I want us together to hear God's invitation to rest out of what he has already done, not what we think we need to do. In order to do that, then I'm going to let the idea of rest unfold from the text that Glenn read this morning from Hebrews And what we're going to find in that particular text is that the rhythm of rest that the author of Hebrews is setting before God's people actually has its origins all the way back in Genesis, has its example in the people of Israel, and has its center actually in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so to keep us on track this morning with all these places this author goes to, in order to see God's invitation to practice the art of receiving his gift of rest, there are three redefinitions of rest that that, that are in this passage that I want us to examine. Here they are. Rest is first and foremost a promise, rest is a person, and rest is a practice. Rest is not what we just do on the weekend, it is a promise we receive, a person we trust in, and a practice we inhabit. Promise, person, practice. And that means, if you're tracking, that before we get to the practical, we got to understand the promise and see the person otherwise. Our foundation of rest is going to be unstable and is going to lead us into legalism rather than into the gospel. And so I want us to look at our text and start with that first redefinition. Rest is a promise. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 6. Therefore. Now, TVC, we've talked about this word before here. Whenever we see a therefore in the text, we want to make sure we're paying attention to the context of the passage to let the context set the guidelines for how we understand and apply this text. So I want to catch us up to where we are in Hebrews before we go any further. You see, up until this point in the letter, the author of Hebrews has been laying groundwork for this therefore 
by talking about Jesus. You see, in chapter 1, we read that God speaks fully and finally through his son, Jesus. Better than any angel, Jesus is the one who radiates God's glory and sustains all of creation. The author of Hebrews then goes on to make the argument that if that's true, and if the message of angels in the past has been something that God's people need to pay attention to, how much more the message of the Son of God who became human for us, who was crowned the King of glory through his suffering and his death and and resurrection, who saved us from the sin that is trying to kill us. Faithful through it all, even to the point of death, the text tells us in these first few chapters that Jesus reflects the love, the faithfulness, and the holiness of God, his faithfulness to others. The author then, talking about Jesus and painting this big, bright picture of who Jesus is, goes on to build on this argument. He takes all of this, and then the the author takes us all the way back in the Bible to Psalm 95, which is actually going to show up a couple times this morning. In Psalm 95, we read this uh, retelling of the story of God's people wandering in the wilderness. David, the uh, poet of Psalm 95, actually takes this story and starts talking about how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, that they're, they're now on their way to the promised land, but, but on the way, something happened. Their, their wires got crossed. They, they did not follow uh, God's mathematics and put two and two together, that salvation is necessarily followed by obedience. And so they decided to disobey. Instead of listening to God's voice and humbly following the creator king who saved them, they they hardened their hearts, they ignored his voice, and they did not believe that he could make good on the promises he made to them. And it wasn't even just one time. Over and over again, God's people do this. they're, They're enjoying the benefits of the king, but complaining that it wasn't enough. And then when push came to shove, they didn't actually step out in faith and enter the land that he promised them. Because of all this, the Bible explains that God did not let them into the land of promise, that this was their punishment, that they would not be able to receive what God had promised them, at least that particular generation. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the generation that was disobedient to God had died. They did not believe, they did not believe what God said would happen, and so they did not receive the land that God promised them. And so Psalm 95 picks up this story And David is using it to praise God because he is worthy of all praise, but to invite people to praise God not just by singing, but by their obedience. So why in the world does the author of Hebrews go all the way back to this psalm and telling this story? Because of the way that David actually talks about the punishment. You see, the way David talks about the punishment, it's not just about being able to enjoy the property God promised. It was about disobedience, keeping the people of God from enjoying the rest that God promised. And so Psalm 95 ends like this. I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is what the author of Hebrews is picking up on and quoting in chapter 3. Not only is Jesus' message, the, the, the gospel, something we should listen to because he is God, even though that should be more than enough, but because previous examples where God's people did not listen to God led to disaster, to, to giving up on the promise. But Hebrews contains more than just a command to obey. It also contains hope because we read in our text, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, verse 7, God again set a certain day calling it today. 
This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. This is Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The promise of rest is still available for God's people. The, 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 those who previously heard the good news of God's rest, they failed to receive it because of their disobedience. But God was not phased and he did not give up. He again set a certain day and he called it today through David's poetry in Psalm 95. The promise is still alive. And it's not just a promise of property. It is so much more than that. This is something God's people are still waiting for. And the author of Hebrews continues building up on the argument in this next verse, writing this, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. If you track with the whole story in the Bible, God's people eventually physically enter the land that God promised them. Joshua, their general, leads them into it. But the author of Hebrews argues that they never actually received God's promise because if they had, God would not then, through David, be talking about another day. God's people never spiritually received God's rest. The, the, the kind of rest that comes in a life obedient to him, resting in righteousness, receiving his promise. The good news, the gospel that was preached to them of not just acquiring property, but being part of God's people and on God's mission to the world and being a path of blessing for all nations, they rejected this good news, this incredible gift, for something small and inconsequential. And in so doing, they gave up the rest God promised his people because they were disobedient as God's people. But God was not phased, and he did not give up. His salvation project to save humanity from sin and death would not be derailed by disobedience. He would continue to offer his promise of rest to any who would trust and obey him. And this is why I'm saying that rest is a promise. A promise that will not and cannot be broken by disobedience, but a promise that is received only by obedience. And in our case, fast forward to Jesus in the obedience of one person. The author of Hebrews continues, verse 9, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Do you hear the hope in this text? There is still a rest that is available for God's people, that God is holding out a promise he has made to anyone who believes and it is a rest, like the Sabbath that God speaks about in his law, but more importantly, this text tells us, a Sabbath that reflects God's rest. A rest from work. Not just your job, not just the weekend, but from the work of trying to save yourself, to make yourself mean something. The author of Hebrews, after camping out in Psalm 95, goes all the way back to Genesis to make the point that God promises a kind of rest for his people that is more than just not working, but something special, something holy, something that brings life. Right? The author of Hebrews writes, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish. Let's go back to Genesis 2 to see how that rest was tied to life. In Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we read this summary of God's life-giving creative work. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, separate, set apart, special. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Why did God rest? 
because he was tired. He just made everything. Isaiah 40, 28 says that God never gets tired or weary. So if you look at, again, at Genesis 2, it, it does not tell us that God needed to rest. It simply says that God rested. He rested, and then he blessed that day as holy, set apart, separate, significant. Why? Because on that particular day, he rested. He, he stopped working. He ceased creating. The promise of rest is not a promise that is made first and foremost because we need it, even though we are limited and we do need it. It is a promise that is made based on the fact that God rested. In the same way that God stopped working, there is a promise that God is inviting us into and giving us as a gift called rest of not working to make something happen, but sitting in the reality that something has already happened. We are already his people. Rest is promised to us as God's people. It is a promise for God's people. It is a promise that God holds out for all who believe in him with more than just their minds, but with their whole lives. This is why Hebrews talks about obedience so much. Not because we have to earn that rest, but because receiving the promise of God is only and truly made evident in the life that pleases God. And part of that life is a life that practices the art of receiving God's gift of rest. Of believing the promise of rest and receiving that promise rather than working so hard to get it. Now some of you might be hearing this and going, okay, Eric, I get it. God has promised rest, but what is that rest? I mean, are you talking about sleeping are you talking about laying out on the couch? Are you talking about where I have to like take 24 hours in every week and just not do anything? What, what, what is it that we're talking about? Settle down. We'll get there. You see, before we look at the practice, we need to not only see it as a promise, we also need to see it as a person. You see, God promised that he would give us rest, but before we practice rest, we need to see rest not just as a, a to-do, but as someone who already did. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 3 to show you where that is in the text. Hebrews 3 is where the, the author of Hebrews actually first brings up Psalm 95 and the connection between obedience and listening to God's voice. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 8 begin like this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, this is in Psalm 95, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Remember the story when God's people wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience. David is using this story to make a point. When you hear God's voice calling you and drawing you to him, you must respond in obedience rather than resist with a hard heart. Rest is difficult not just because we don't have the time or, or we don't have too much to do, but because these excuses are masking our pride and our self-sufficiency. They keep us from seeing how hard our hearts are to God because he promises us rest and yet we still believe that we need to work and do it ourselves. This is why just a few verses later, in 12 through 14, the author urges the church, God's people, like this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Do not be like the people of God wandering in the wilderness. God spoke to them, and instead of believing him, they turned away from him. Their hearts were hard. And so the author of Hebrews explains that image of hard hearts by plainly speaking of sinful, unbelieving hearts. These people weren't just doubting, they were actively disobeying. And this is the problem that we have with rest. The author of Hebrews pleads with God's people to turn towards rather than away from the living God. How? Verse 13, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. There's the encouragement. Did you catch that? Encourage one another daily with what? With the gospel. With the good news of Jesus. This argument, this is, is encouragement, is the antidote to the deception of sin that tries to poison us against God's voice. How do we know we've been saved? That we believe the gospel, that we, we share in Christ by holding our original conviction, Hebrews says. What conviction? The conviction of the gospel that God has spoken to us, not just in the history of Israel and the prophets of old, but ultimately, finally, fully, and completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus. He came and he revealed God to us, not just by living a perfect life of righteousness, but by dying in our place as the punishment for our sin, by victoriously coming back to life and leading all of us from death and sin to life in Christ, all of us who believe. Let me bring this back to rest, though. This work of Jesus in his life and on the cross and out of the tomb is what takes the place of any work we could ever do to try and get back to God. Our, our feeble and failed attempts to make ourselves righteous are answered not by God's rejection, but in Jesus by a better way, a better work, a Savior who did what we couldn't so that we could rest in his finished work. We no longer have to do more. He already did it. And yet, that doesn't mean that there's not something we need to do. Look back at Hebrews 4, the text that we read at the very beginning. The church is encouraged to make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. Make every effort. Enter his promise of rest. Receive the person of rest, Jesus. We no longer need to work to earn God's favor. In Christ, we already have it. We no longer need to work to find the rest of God, rest for our tired souls because we have it in Christ. But we have to actually receive it. Right? We, we have to humbly repent of our sin, turn back from our sin, turn towards him and believe and confess that he is the one true God, that he is the one who made everything and he knows how life is lived best because he is God and we are not. He is the one who brought us from death to life, from working hard to be accepted to now receiving his acceptance by faith. Because rest is not just a promise that God gives us, it is also embodied in the person God gives us, Jesus Christ himself. We practice the art of receiving God's gift of rest by trusting in his promise and relying on his person. Trusting that what he says is actually true, that, that obedience to him does not lead to back-breaking work, but life-giving rest. We have to declare, not just by the way we speak, but by the way that we act, that his way of life is best. We recognize that obedience is never something we do on our own, but something that is grounded in and founded upon the finished work of Christ. But obedience demonstrates what we actually believe. Rest is not only a promise we receive, but a person we believe in. His work is what enables our obedience and gives us rest. And this is why I started where we did. Rest is a promise. Rest is a purpose. And believing these two redefinitions of rest, we can now get to the final and most practical redefinition that rest is a practice. I'll unpack that by going all the way back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The fourth commandment reads like this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There it is again. God commands his people to rest. And he grounds the command in his own example in Genesis 2. But here in this particular text in Exodus 20, God's command is not just given, it is also illustrated. Right? Work is for six days, but on the seventh day, don't do any work. Why? Because in this way, we imitate the God who made us. He rested, so we rest. Now, if you look through Jewish literature and and even study the practices of certain groups within Judaism, this command not to work is picked apart and carefully defined and clarified. Don't walk this amount of steps. Don't do this, but you can do that because this is work and that is not. Jesus himself said in this convoluted mess of hundreds of examples of work that the Sabbath was made for humanity, not the other way around. So what I want us to focus on here is not what is work, but what is rest. Because if we go down the rabbit hole... We start missing the point that God is making with this theme of rest and Sabbath, a theme that is introduced in the first few pages of Scripture that goes through Exodus 20, but is actually repeated in a whole lot of places in the law and the history and the prophets where it's almost 150 times showing up in the Old Testament. This theme is actually bigger than people if you track through the story. You see, Sabbath rest, these laws, they're not just for people. It's also God applies it to the land that he gives them. Right? Every seven years, God commands his people to give the land rest for an entire year. They have to stop sowing. They have to stop pruning their vineyards for a whole year. And, and then on top of that, God says, okay, every seventh, seventh, which if you do the math, I did it for you, it's 49. So every 50th year, God commands them to have a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Right? It's called the year of Jubilee, where every piece of land is sold that, that, that was sold to pay off debt, every person that was actually uh, uh, working off their debt, is free. The land is given back to the original family that God gave it to. There's a year of freedom, not, not just celebrating rest, but celebrating freedom and reasserting the belief of God's people that God is the king who provides for his people. The fourth commandment is not just given arbitrarily to the people of God as something to do. It is a rhythm that God invites his people into every week, every seven years, every 50 years, that reflects their belief in God as the one true king, that lives out their trust in God to provide. After all, if you really think about the way they had to apply these laws, they had to trust God if they were going to obey God and take a Sabbath. I mean, how do you refuse to sow or prune for an entire year? God anticipates this, and actually Leviticus 25 tells us people to trust him that he's going to provide in the sixth year an overabundant harvest. You see, God is not ignorant of our needs. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field who don't worry about where their food is coming from and don't worry about the clothes that's going to be on their backs. God does not command rest without providing and making it possible to rest. But rest takes practice. It takes intentionality. It takes definition. In Exodus 20, God defines it for his people at that time. You you work for six days and you don't work on day seven. None of you. No one in your family not even the person that's traveling among you, not even your animals, everyone rests. Not just because we need it, but because he did it. Think about it. If God commanded us to rest uh, only as something we needed, 
I can guarantee you there are some of us that would like to uh, try to slide right past that by saying, you know, I don't, I don't really need it. They might, but I don't. You know, I'm good. I can function off of four hours of sleep. It's, it's kind of how you made me. You should know, right? There's truth to the fact that we need to rest. It's good and godly to rest. Jesus said, Sabbath made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. But God did not command us to rest because we needed it. He commanded us to rest because he did it. And he is both our king and our example. So when he commands us something, we do it. And when he leads the way, we follow. Rest is not just this command to obey. It's, it's a rhythm that requires practice. Hebrews 4.11, again, there's there, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. Make every effort. Or to say it like I've been saying it this morning, practice the art of receiving God's gift of rest. God promises rest for his people. The rest that he himself stepped into at the end of his creative activity, but that, that promise requires that we actually step into it, that we grab hold of it, that we receive it, and we show we've received it through obedience. Not just our obedience, but trusting in the obedience of another. Because rest is not just a promise, rest is also a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who accomplished our rest by dying on a cross and coming back to life for us. The gospel is a gospel of rest. An invitation for rest for weary souls. Good news to hearts that are working hard to achieve and to be something and to be recognized and be seen as good and be fulfilled. The good news of our king is a message that's spoken to us as he puts his hands on our shoulders and instead of feeling weighed down, we feel infinitely lighter. It is good news to be told to rest in him. But if we receive the promise and believe the person, then it will lead to more than just a concept we agree with, but a rhythm we practice. Not out of some kind of legalistic obedience, trying to make sure we stay on the straight and narrow, but because in these rhythms, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. We declare that he is the king who determines how life is best to be lived. We proclaim that he is the one who provides for us, not working 80 hours a week or functioning off of two hours of sleep at night. But the creator king, our good Father, we preach the gospel in our rhythms of rest, and this is why he invites us into Sabbath. And so I want us to consider the rhythms of rest we can preach the gospel through in our lives with God. And I'll be first to admit that I really struggle with this. Rest does not come easy for me. I am always on. My wife can tell you. And when I'm not on, I'm usually just wasting time than actually resting. Because the practice of rest is more than just not working. It is living out restorative rhythms that remind us of and replay the story of the gospel in our lives. And so when I think about rhythms of rest, I try to think in these four categories. And I'm going to go through each of them here pretty quickly. But the categories are up on the screen. They're, they're daily, weekly, seasonally, and yearly. And I'm not just grabbing these categories out of nowhere. These categories are based on this ancient practice called the rule of life that God's people in certain parts of the church have done for a long time. And, and it's not just some kind of mystical thing. A rule of life is simply an intentional way to plan and pursue growth in Christ, not just individually, but communally. All right, it's, it's like a trellis or a scaffold or a skeleton, right? It's not what makes someone holy or grow in Christ. It provides structure to spiritual lives. It is living life with God on purpose with those around us. And the rule of life then asks us to think in terms of rhythms and seasons. What, what rhythms will we use in different seasons and at different frequency to help us grow as followers of Jesus? And so this morning, in those terms, what rhythms of rest should each of us 
potentially consider incorporating into our lives in this next year. Rhythms at a daily, weekly, seasonally, yearly frequency. And you can think of other frequencies. This is not like the gospel up here. Just uh, things for you to consider, suggestions that I might give. Ways that principally we might think about implementing that preach the gospel of rest to ourselves and to others. So what could rest look like for you daily? Right, maybe it's something as simple as setting a, a sleep goal of a certain number of hours because when you sleep, you declare that God is the king who runs the world rather than you, that you don't have to stay awake and make sure that you're running everything. Maybe it's something as heretical as taking an afternoon nap. Maybe, sorry, I was kidding with that one. You guys got real serious real fast. You could take an afternoon nap. I was just messing around. Maybe it's something like starting the day with 15 minutes of doing nothing but drinking coffee or tea by the window right before you read your Bible and just sitting in silence. Maybe it's reading a book, taking a walk. I, it, it doesn't really matter the specifics as long as you actually have a plan because rest looks all sorts of ways. You'll know you're resting if you are being refilled instead of drained. Not refilled by the intoxication of getting things done. All of you overachievers out there, I already know how you think because I think the same way. Checked it off the list, but being refilled by remembering who you are in Christ, how he provides for you. You'll know you're resting if you are less worried and more trusting. If you, you have a tighter hold on Jesus than, than on your life or your possessions or, or your family, you're not going to get it right immediately, which is why I am calling this a rhythm to practice, not a task to accomplish. The more we practice rest, the better we get at it, not for its own sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Believing the gospel for ourselves and preaching it to others. I mean, imagine the testimony it would be to hold the line, the boundary on how many hours you work. Not being on call all the time. Trying to get ahead all the time. Trusting that work has its place, but that place is not center stage because that's where Jesus' throne is. Keeping these boundaries, not so that you can live for the weekend or just make it to vacation, but to live a life that declares that God's got this more than we ever could. What could rest look like weekly for you? Might I suggest that a Sabbath is a good idea? Taking 24 hours, setting it aside for God and what he can use to restore us. I'm not saying that the Sabbath is a law that we have to keep because Jesus has fulfilled the law and we don't have to do all those things in order to be God's people. We already are God's people. But that doesn't mean that Sabbath is not a good idea that God had. It's, not just a, it's just not a notch on the belt of salvation, but, but Sabbath is a rhythm that we could potentially implement weekly. But there are other creative ways to do that. What about seasonally? What rhythms of rest could match the grain of the calendar and help us rest in different seasons? Not some like quarterly goal, but, but taking a look at your calendar, seeing the seasons in your year, not just the seasons of weather, but like the contours of your family and your job and your church family and finding pockets where rest could potentially be extended, similar to the principle of a year of Sabbath. You see, the people of God had a weekly rhythm of Sabbath, but they also had an extended Sabbath for the land every seven years. In a smaller way, but similarly, what kind of extended Sabbath could we implement in different seasons that preach the gospel of a king who rested and a king who provides? Maybe it's a vacation, Maybe it's a staycation, no judging. Maybe it's a month where every Friday is an extra day off. However you want to get creative with it. The point is not just to do nothing, but to seek God's restoration and actually demonstrate trust that he's the one who makes the world spin, not us in our impossible work weeks. How about yearly? 
Right? Next week, we're going to be looking at this particular rhythm of retreat. So I won't go too far into it here, but, but what might a yearly rhythm of Sabbath look like? Maybe an extended vacation. Maybe it's a, a spiritual retreat. Maybe it's something else creative. Whatever it is, the goal is to pick something that builds on your other rhythms of rest and align it with the goal of rest, preaching the gospel to yourself and to others. Now, I don't usually get as specific as I just have for those who have been listening to me for a while, but I wanted to make this practice of rest tangible and actionable for us. But I also want to be really careful that you don't think that I'm handing you out a to-do list. I'm inviting us, not just you, but us, into the, the, the practicing the art of receiving God's gift of rest and practically considering what rhythms of rest we can be intentional about in our lives as gospel preaching practices that help us be who God made us to be who he is remaking us to be as followers of Jesus. This isn't just more things for you to do. This is ways for you to act out what you believe on purpose in your life. Because there's more than enough of us who are tired of having to be run into the ground with all the things that we have to do. All the things we have to beat everybody. The gospel tells us there's a better way. So I'm going to end our time with these words of Jesus that... that Sergio read earlier, these, these words that are for the tired and the weak. For those who are weighed down, who are weary, those who need rest and want rest, and who, like me, struggle to rest. These words from the Savior of our souls, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus tells us this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest is a promise that God's people receive. Rest is a person that God's people believe. And rest is a practice that God's people inhabit because we hear the voice of the one who gives us rest from all that sins, deceptions have burdened us with. The voice of the one who made us and who has saved us. So as we take a moment to pray, I want us to consider all the ways in which we might rest in the gospel in this new year. All the ways in which we might show that rest by the way that we live. Would you pray with me? God who promises us rest, this morning we rest in you. Would you soften our hearts to receive your promise? Would you humble our hearts to believe Jesus, our rest? Would you invite us into this practice of rest, not as some religious requirement, but as a restorative rhythm. This morning, we remember that we rest because you rested. We rest because unlike you, we are limited, and in our rest, we declare our trust in you, our trust that you will provide everything we need. And so this morning, as we end 2021, and we anticipate 2022, may you invite us into new rhythms of rest that, that might look radical in our culture of hurry. And may we preach the gospel through our rest. Help us not just as individual followers of Jesus, but even us collectively as a familia of Jesus' followers to practice rest faithfully and fruitfully. We love you. And we trust you as we end another year that you have given us. And we pray that you would help us receive this next year as a gift from you with everything that you give us in it. Would you make us more like Jesus this year? We trust you.